Welcome to A Shot in the Arm. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is the podcast that explores the wonderful world of global health and human rights from Cairo to Calapan City. We unpack new, exciting biomedical advances and seek to understand how they will affect not only ourselves, but the societies we live in. If you are a regular listener, you are my shot arm podsters, and I thank you for your support. You know what to do. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. Subscribe to us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at Shot Arm Podcast. Like us, and if you do, give us five stars. This week, it's just me. In a minute, I'm going to tell the story of Pangea Global Aids, a global non-profit think tank and technical assistance agency that I had the privilege to lead for seven years. It closed in 2017, and it's a tough but ultimately positive story. Many listeners have urged me to reflect on that moment and consider the contribution of non-profit, non-governmental organisations, what they do and what happens when they know they need to pack up shop. But first, let's talk about everything that's going on this week in health and human rights. I've just got back from the bioconference in Philadelphia, and I got to chat with scientific and business leaders who are committed to bringing new biotechnology advances to communities around the world. Human creativity just amazes me sometimes. It's the science, yes, but it's also the way in which people try to share the fruits of that science with others. It pisses me off no end that the biopharmaceutical industry is considered to be at the bottom of the list of industries, somewhere in between tobacco and arms manufacturers, who really are the merchants of death. The industry is not its best advocate at times and does a whole lot of things wrong, sometimes accidentally and sometimes willfully. Without doubt, it is an outrage that a fellow human being is unable to access a drug, diagnostic or vaccine that might otherwise save their life. That status quo just isn't acceptable. It isn't good enough and we need to change it. But we live in a world where Margaret Thatcher's monetarist market economy is still queen. That won't last forever, but in the meantime, I make no apologies when I say that the industry makes a fundamental contribution to human health. We've just got to share that wealth. Another question I get from many subscribers is why I haven't commented yet on US Prep for All and its campaign to unlock the patents of two medicines that are used in HIV prevention or PrEP. It's a tough one for me, and it does not offer a simple solution. So firstly, you are never going to hear me criticise other advocates. I'm not talking about professional protesters but rather the people who have put their lives on hold, and some of them have even put their lives on the line to fight against one of the greatest menaces to human survival, HIV. They deserve our respect and support, even when, indeed especially when, you don't necessarily understand some of the tactics. You also aren't going to hear me criticise the target of their campaign, Gilead Sciences. This isn't some version of W.B. Yeats's rough beast slouching towards Bethlehem. There are good people who work there, trying their best to negotiate this crazy storm that's called healthcare in the United States. For total transparency, yes, Hunavat does support Gilead's Global Access Programme, and we collaborate on reinvigorating the business response to AIDS. I'm deeply grateful to Peter Staley and colleagues who have actually put HIV prevention back at the top of the agenda. 
Everyone knows I consider that as a movement, we have failed singularly in HIV prevention. If we don't grasp this moment, then we will have betrayed the people we are supposed to serve. We need to take advantage of this activism, take advantage of the extraordinary donation Gilead has made, and shine the light very firmly on a US White House that is very willing to ignore the needs of citizens in exchange for the continued support of its base. Whether you like how we got here or not, biomedical HIV prevention is now available in an unparalleled way in the US. Our responsibility is to make the government play its part and make access to the tens of thousands of people in need who are not covered by insurance. I am still trying to understand how the controversy will affect the social compact, if you will, of developing drugs for emerging markets. This was developed imperfectly over the last two decades, and it goes something like this. The public sector researchers, notably the CDC and NIH, collaborate with for-profit drug diagnostic and vaccines makers to agree a strategy that will enable the product to be cost-free and for it to be developed for developing countries. The patent holder will make the product free and it will offer some R&D advice, especially on how to bring the product rapidly and efficiently to market. Once the product is approved globally, normally through WHO pre-qualification, it is then rapidly approved across national regulatory bodies and generics companies come in to manufacture and distribute the product via global and national purchasing vehicles like Gavi or the Global Fund. The price is at or close to commodity levels. Meanwhile, the patent holder is free to seek relevant regulatory approvals in the EU or US and market the drug in a more or less traditional way. We thought it was a win-win. But it's not clear whether and to what extent the downward pressure on one side of the compact will have on the future. Gilead took a risk and was an early adopter of this model. You could argue that it was commercial suicide to do so. Nobody in the public health field wanted the company to be involved in the clinical development of Truvada for PrEP, its then blockbuster in the field of treatment. And to be fair, the company respected that. It donated product to trials being developed by public health agencies. And I'm not sure how the PrEP for All campaign will affect other arrangements, and there's no reason for Peter and colleagues to listen to anything I say, but for what it's worth, they might want to reassure themselves that the arrangements in place for the development of new ARV, oral and injectable PrEP formulations, TB and other diseases are not being affected. And as for the companies themselves, a little more modesty might be in order as they think through the pricing strategies for these medicines once they have been approved. There is no escaping it. There's a degree of transparency they have not experienced before. Finally, some good news this week. We also see the hugely important Women Deliver conference taking place in Vancouver, Canada. In each episode, we highlight organisations that are fighting the good fight and defending sexual health justice. Well, Women Deliver does that and more. It is the global advocate for gender equality and the health and human rights of girls and women. It is rooted in sexual and reproductive rights, including judgment-free access to safe abortion. Its founder, Jill Sheffield, and its executive director, Katya Iverson, know that if you invest in girls and women, you get results for everyone. Women Deliver has a huge place in my heart, and I'm really sorry not to be with my brothers and sisters there this week. But the world's top health and human rights activists are there. 
including last week's guest Georgia Arnold from MTV Staying Alive. Women Deliver is also a terrific place to keep yourself updated on what's happening at the conference, even if you can't be there. And you'll find resources on our website on how to do that. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for. The rise and fall and rise again of Pangaea Global Aids. Where to start? A rough Cook's tour of the history. Pangaea was founded in 2000 by the San Francisco AIDS Foundation's Pat Christen and Eric Goosby to be a vehicle to enable San Franciscans concerned about the global nature of AIDS to contribute something good and worthwhile. And, and wow, Pangaea developed workplace programs for large multinationals in HIV and TB. It led harm reduction programs in China and Tanzania. It set up HIV treatment programs in Rwanda and South Africa. And it challenged the status quo in Oakland, across the bay from San Francisco, which had the most appallingly shoddy reporting and linkage to care programme. I came into the mix in 2010, when Eric Goosby had just moved to D.C. to become Obama's Global AIDS ambassador. He took pretty much all the staff with him, and I was left with a desk and a tart instruction from the then board of the San Francisco Aid Foundation that we had to move out of our office space within six months. That was definitely the fall of Pangaea. But my first hire was the world's leading expert on implementation science, Megan Dunbar. And soon after that, we began to create a compelling set of initially small but mutually reinforcing programmes. From harm reduction in Yunnan province in China, improving access to HIV testing and scaling up the quality of those tests and linkage to care, helping WHO speed through inform informal normative treatment guidelines, what we used to call them treatment optimization. We helped the breast care awareness movement in China learn from the lessons of the HIV movement in major cities in the country. And we created the first PrEP community advisory board in Oakland to help MSM of colour access services. But the jewel in the crown was the collaboration with Zimbabwean health authorities to provide life skills to HIV-positive teenage girls. And we then extended services to enable young girls and men, negative or positive, to enter into comprehensive HIV treatment and prevention services. No technology was too advanced or too radical for it not to be the subject of our interest and to be the subject of patients who would one day come to rely on it to save their lives. I think our peak came in the summer of 2016, where at the Second World AIDS Conference held in Durban, South Africa, Pangaea, in one form or another, was central or present in all key discussions about prevention for girls and women, treatment optimization, community mobilization and private sector engagement. From our little Airbnb down the road by the coast, you could say we were the forest gump of the AIDS response. We were pretty much everywhere. But even then, there were rumblings. I remember a Skype conversation on a dank, humid evening overlooking the Indian Ocean, talking to the board about the risks of us becoming increasingly reliant on one donor. It also begged the question what to do if the cost of operations ever got to the point where they exceeded the ability to fund or provide services for our partners. Didn't we have an obligation just to go away at that point? Well, during the fall, or autumn as we prefer to call it, those rumblings became louder. And I remember it clearly. The evening of Friday the 13th, 2016, had to be a Friday the 13th, didn't it? 
I was sitting in a laundromat off 19th Street in San Francisco. I had flooded one of the washers by stuffing a large duvet into it, which had been, as we tended to call it, a pug-poob apocalypse, caused by Crazy Eddie the Pug, and I was now waiting for the owner to show up and tell me how stupid I had been. But the programme manager of the foundation called to tell me that the foundation had decided not only not to proceed with one new grant proposal, but that it had decided to reallocate another major programme we had spent months developing, as usual at no cost, to another organisation which in their mind could do the job better than we could. If this sounds brutal and desperately unfair, I have to say that is exactly how I felt. At some point there will be space for an analysis of the relative merits and greater menaces of empowering extremely large foundations to use tax write-offs to determine global health policy, but that's for another time. For now, all I will say is that I knew the plan that the small group of Pangea board members and I had toyed with needed to be kicked into action. Over that Christmas, and oh, what a joyful time that was, the executive committee of the board and I spoke almost every day in complete confidence exploring whatever way we could to save Pangea. But it was clear if we wanted to retain some modicum of ownership of the process, we needed to act now. We didn't even have reserves to pay adequate severance pay to everyone, which ultimately was available to everyone bar me and one other staff member who didn't have a job to move on to. As soon as New Year's was out of the way, I met with all staff and somewhat overly cool and distant from myself, using the language prepared by lawyers, I explained the news that we were closing and that we would wind down over the coming three months and we would work with colleagues to find alternative employment. I came home that night ashen. My partner Eric consoled me with a glass of neat whiskey and I realised that I too had lost my job. The process then took over. In a sense, I had no more control and was just the mouthpiece. It was an in-depth review of all income, all expenditure, all liabilities. We prioritised paying staff over paying monthly bills for, for example, photocopiers. That one would come back to haunt me for over a year, but hey, never mind. We had to negotiate with funders on the close-down of programmes. Some rightly demanded the balance of funding back. Some offered to allow us to keep a percentage of the balance that was owed in order for us to wind up gracefully, and I'm extremely, extremely grateful for that. No detail was too small. I learned to pore over Excel spreadsheets in ways I had not thought possible. You entered into the drudgery of bureaucracy, implementing ordinances and requirements that you had absolutely no control over. Perhaps the most difficult part of the experience was trying to support colleagues find alternative employment, particularly those with young families. You had to take on and manage their despair with them. Through this, I was supported by a phenomenal board, which had reduced in size to chair Eric Roberts, a former forensic accountant. Who knew that a role could be so valuable and that accountants could be so intuitive and supportive? We were joined by Kathleen Burke, a former HR president and former CEO of her own organisation, and Cathy Fisher, one of the toughest lawyers I've ever met. They provided the legal and financial framework for me to conduct the matters that needed conducting, but more than that, they provided a place for me to vent and to grieve. Whatever people tell you, 
Being an ED of a non-profit agency, whether it's a technical support or a network of key populations, is one of the toughest jobs there is. You are directly responsible for delivering a life-or-death mission while at the same time making sure you are in compliance with the most bizarre and Byzantine and often contradictory federal and state laws. You are directly responsible for the well-being of your staff and your consultants. And you are always hustling for money, which is frustrating because you would much rather be challenging the status quo. For people doing this in HIV, sexual and reproductive health, hepatitis, breast cancer and other diseases, it is an exceptionally difficult job and the people who do it are phenomenal. You have to be the glue that holds the organisation and adapt, anticipate the changing moods of donors, most of which have absolutely no understanding of the impact they are having. I read a how-to book which recommends CEOs take a sheet of learning from the major military disasters of the last century with a particular focus on Vietnam. But being British, I suppose the temptation was to look at Dunkirk, which we have rewritten to be a, an amazing victory, but was in fact a crushing military defeat, possibly the largest by one European power over another. A more telling example, though, might be the withdrawal of Anzac troops from Gallipoli, a campaign launched by then First Lord of the Admiralty Winston Churchill, an appalling and unnecessary grinder of flesh. It was ended in complete secrecy one night in 1917, and the Shock Turks woke up the following morning and found no evidence of the Commonwealth forces left. I did learn lessons from the US military on how to handle winding down of an organisation, one that sticks in my mind is the decision made by generals at the start of the Iraq war not to allow any further use of PowerPoint presentations. The thinking was that the format does not encourage preparatory thinking and can be as useless as an endless shopping list. The need for a plan, or at least the mindset of planning, was the most important thing, combined with the willingness to extemporize when needed. The funniest thing? I still get calls from headhunters inviting me to be short-term CEOs of organisations that have decided to close. I mean, what am I? A new prince of darkness? No, I never want to do this again. And when policy experts, normally housed in these foundations or think tanks employed by them, recommend sweeping changes that will bring an end to a swathe of organisations, we need to be exceptionally wary of them. How many of these organisations have they actually closed themselves? None? Well, shut up then. In December 2018, I received a letter from the California Attorney General informing me that Pangaea, which had actually closed its doors in March 2017, had now been approved to close and its 501c3 status removed. It was an unremarkable footnote to the story. But it made me realise that the narrative was not about failure. It was about rise, fall and rise again. We explicitly moved programs to homes in the countries where they worked. You'll find Pangaea still lives on in the Pangaea Zimbabwe AIDS Trust, where an exceptional group of women and community mobilisation experts engage communities, the Ministry of Health, the Global Fund. And you'll find it in the work of AIDS Care Asia, which takes the lessons learned from programs in China and applies them across the region. The big lesson for me, which is at the root of the final rise of Pangaea, is about humility. 
Winding down Pangaea, while immensely painful, was absolutely the right thing to do. If you are doing no more than raising money just to keep the lights on, you have no business being in business in the first place. Many of us working in the AIDS movement knew from 2015 that a wave of closures was coming towards us. And here we are. There isn't a single one of us who does not know of an organisation that has closed or which isn't under immense pressure to stay afloat. It is always hard and it demands a rigour and determination that we really haven't seen since the start of the AIDS epidemic. My advice, for what it's worth, is to own the process, lead it. Don't let the donors make decisions for you. Besides, as a movement, we are only entering the next phase of a new, exciting and frustrating journey into anticipating new epidemics, new and old. The ability to be nimble and to do so rapidly is what remains central to our calling. As for me, with hindsight, I can now divide my life to date as follows. In my 20s, I was terrified of AIDS, fearful of death, and I became my own kind of activist. In my 30s, that activism found home in the business response to AIDS and then as a bureaucrat in the UN. In my 40s, I was immersed into HIV non-profit governance. And in my 50s, I have no idea really, I am reinventing myself through a Shot in the Arm podcast and like so many people after Trump and Brexit, I realise I have to fight for the values I had assumed were sacrosanct. I have no confidence that we will ride through this era without intentional leadership. We are on course to repeat the horrors of the 1940s. So we have to do what we can, in ways that only we can. That is why we rise. And so this episode is dedicated to the hard-working executive directors around the world of non-profits. You know who you are. You are a shot in the arm. Well, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Eric Espera of NewsDoc Media for producing the show. Thanks to the British indie pop band Saint Etienne, whose music got me through the toughest of times in the 90s. You can find us at Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, Spotify and Stitcher. Subscribe to us at Shot Arm Podcast, like us, and if you do, give us five stars. Have a great week, everybody, and thank you all for being a shot in the arm. Yeah.